We are working our way through a seven-part series called The Advent, where we're looking at everything related to the birth of Jesus in kind of a Calvary Chapel style. We are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, setting the scene chronologically, which has led us to jumping around a bit. A few Sundays back, we started by looking at the rumblings, the prophetic birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner, this amazing miracle that took place in the life of an, of an old priest named Zacharias and his barren wife, Elizabeth. Family members, by the way, to a young maiden that we looked at in the town of Nazareth, who the angel Gabriel appeared to with an amazing pronouncement that of all of the women she was chosen, blessed, chosen, favored to be the mother of the Messiah. This long awaited prophecy dating back to the garden, Genesis 3:15, weaving its way all the way down through the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter seven, eight, nine. Mary, the virgin, the sign, the virgin will conceive, Mary chosen. Now this complicated Mary's life, undoubtedly, because she was betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph to be married. So they're in this particular season in kind of the marriage uh, structure there in Hebrew, Hebrew culture, uh, religious structure, where Joseph is preparing a home and Mary is at her father's house every day getting herself ready. Gabriel intercedes, says, you're going to be pregnant. How can this be? I'm a virgin. I've known no man. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Mary accepts this. But man, she is dealing with the implications. In an act of mercy, Mary goes, she leaves before anyone knows. She goes to visit Elizabeth, who at the time is about six months pregnant with John. And oh, the greeting, Elizabeth, and the babe leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and she's as highly favored. She reckoned, without Mary having to say anything, Elizabeth testifies as to the work that God has done in her life. Inevitably, she has to return after the birth of John. She goes back. She goes back to Nazareth. Three months later, with the early signs of pregnancy, this can no longer be a secret. Her parents will know, and importantly, Joseph is going to know. And what a conversation that must have been. And Mary is praying as Joseph is considering whether to believe her story or not, what to do. Seems likely Joseph is gravitating towards disbelief. I mean, how would you wrap your brain around such a tale? Joseph minding, according to the first chapter of Matthew, what to do to put her away secretly. He's a just, a good, a gentle man. Mary's praying, Lord, you got to intervene. Lord, you got to do something. Lord, you got to get through. And sure enough, as Joseph is asleep, he dreams and Gabriel appears, validates Mary's story, but then presents Joseph with a choice, whether or not he's going to include himself in such a story. Joseph understands that this is what happened. He accepts the reality of it. He believes Mary, but he awakes with the choice. Do I want to carry along, along the same baggage? Do I want the same type of induendo? Do I want the same rumors being circulated? I've got to now explain this to my parents. They think she's a cheater. It's a big decision. But Joseph makes the choice that it would, his life, though interrupted and would forever be changed, the trajectory, 
that he would rather be a part of Jesus's story. And he's chosen to be God's kid's stepdad. What an honor to raise Jesus, to be an example to Jesus. What a responsibility. Now, Matthew's gospel, for the most part, just kind of breezes right through the birth of Christ. You don't have to turn there. Uh, But Matthew chapter one, we read verse 24. Then Joseph being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took him his wife, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And that is the Christmas tale provided by Matthew, not much. You get to chapter two, we get to the wise men, but that's like about two years, 18 months later. So as we're examining the chronology, Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of the birth of Christ, which leads us to jump, jumping back to the gospel of Luke. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter two this morning. Luke providing us more details that Matthew leaves out, that Matthew glosses over. We're going to read seven verses here and then kind of work our way into the story. Luke chapter two, beginning with verse one, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Canarius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Really from Matthew's account to now Luke, we have a bit of time that transpires that we have no record of. Mary returns to Nazareth roughly at the three month mark. She explains things to Joseph. Joseph has to make a decision. We don't exactly know how long he, he, he mulled over making the decision. We, don't, we aren't given really a defined timeline. But Mary returns to Nazareth the third month of her pregnancy. The next scene that we have is this story where Mary is fully pregnant. She's full term. She is going to have a baby. She's going to pop at any moment. She's nine months in. So what happens between these six months, we, we really don't know. That being said, there does seem to be, at least from the text and the way the text is presented, a few notions, a few ideas that we can surmise. And that is the fact that, that the families don't accept what is going on. There seems to be this implication. So for about six months, you've got Joseph, who's now defending Mary. They're going to be together. Uh, they're waiting to consummate, to finish uh, the marriage uh, uh, ceremony until she's, she's had this baby. Everyone in town thinks he's a bastard, that Mary's cheated. They don't understand why Joseph's doing what he's doing. We don't have any mention of Joseph's parents in the story. We don't have any mention of Mary's parents in the story. Um, we don't have, it. We, they're just absent. It does seem to be clear that Mary and Joseph Um, probably find, yes, this decree to be inconveniencing, but probably well-timed. 
Uh, in fact, one of the indications of this is that Mary goes with Joseph, and, and that's kind of an odd thing. So Caesar Augustus issues this decree for all the world to be registered. And the purpose for this is taxation. They want everyone to go back to the land of your fathers. This is about land ownership, about the the amount of land, thus that you would need to be taxed. Joseph, as with Mary, both from the lineage of King David, um, get the same decree. But Mary doesn't really have to go. The registration here, the way that taxation worked, is that it was about the, the male as the head of the home. And so Mary could have easily stayed behind in Nazareth and Joseph could have gone to Bethlehem. And yet we see right off the bat, no, that's not the case. That even a very pregnant Mary, they make the, the decision, you're, you're coming with me. I'm not leaving you back. And why? Maybe Mary had no provisions. Joseph's the only one believing her story. Joseph has her back. Joseph loves this woman. Joseph's heard from the angel. Confirmation. Again, we're surmising, we're putting together some pieces. They go to Bethlehem. Mary doesn't have to come, but she comes anyway, even though she's very pregnant and she makes an incredible journey. And guess what happens after this? They don't go back to Nazareth. They go to be registered and then they stay in Bethlehem. And then from Bethlehem, as the story unfolds, after the wise men, King Herod, feeling threatened by this newborn king, another dream, Joseph takes his family. They don't go back to Nazareth, which would have been the logical place to go to escape because no one cares about Nazareth and there's no king coming from Nazareth. But the angel sends him where? Not back to Nazareth. Sends him to Egypt. They're refugees in a foreign land. Until Herod passes away and then another angelic vision, Joseph wants to go back to Bethlehem. And yet the angel is clear that he needs to return home, back to Galilee, back to Nazareth, that Jesus would need, yes, to be born in Bethlehem, to be reared in Egypt, but to grow up in Nazareth. So it takes like angelic involvement for Joseph to be like, I'll go home. Indicating, and I think we we can reach the conclusion, they don't want to. And why? Let me say this. As a father of three, um, I find it to be a very uh, great joy to live 15 minutes from my parents because they're built-in babysitters. You know, like if you have good relationships with your family, you really like having your family around when you have little kids. You get a date night, you can go out. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So just naturally, and then even in Hebrew culture, you want to be with your family. So for them to not go back to Nazareth, to not want to be in Nazareth, at least gives us the notion that there is some complicated family relations, which I should just say as an encouragement, most of us have complicated family relations, right? No one has a perfect family. Jesus didn't have a perfect family. And that was the family he was born into. And so when we deal with our things, we can go to Jesus, our high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, even down to family complications. Rumors. So the census, the decree goes out. Joseph, they've got to make this journey. And Mary's very pregnant, but Mary's staying with him. That's that's the plan here. That's the goal. And I mean, this is a journey. You got to take from Nazareth, you got to go east to the Sea of Galilee, out of the wilderness. It's a tough journey. You get to the Sea of Galilee, then you got to go south down the Jordan River Valley. 
that's an easier journey because it's flat, you got water, but then, but then you got to, around Bethabar, you got to then go back up into the wilderness, heading towards Jerusalem, for Bethlehem was a suburb of Jerusalem. It's one of those things that you, that you really can wrap your brain around best when you're in Jerusalem, because you just look across the hill, that's Bethlehem. Like it's right there. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. It is often where a lot of the, the priests would live. Uh, they, they would, um, shepherds abiding with their flocks in the fields. The flocks were often um, the feeder system for the temple sacrifices. It was all kind of this big enterprise. And so Joseph is going to go to the city of David. That's where he needs to be registered for taxation purposes. He takes his pregnant wife. Now, you know, we often, and I heard many pastors say this, you know, Mary has to ride on a donkey, you know, you know, as they're making this journey. Do you have a donkey reference in your Bible? I don't. It doesn't say that they made this journey, Mary, Mary riding in a really nice Uber. More likely, she's nine months pregnant on her feet, they're not wealthy. I don't know where we get the donkey. I guess we just try to, to help out the story a little bit. We try to sympathize a little with Mary. Again, I, I've, I've had a wife that's been nine months pregnant three times. Walking, not an easy task, yet alone through terrain. I mean, poor, yes, poor Mary, but poor Joseph, right? I mean, that dynamic. And so they get to Bethlehem. Now, now, we're going to work our way through the story, but, but we have to address kind of the, the, the last part of the story because it gives us some context. Everything that happens when they get to uh, the city of Bethlehem occurs, we're told the last line, because there was no room for them in the inn. Apparently, the La Quinta was booked. The Holiday Inn Express was tapped out. No, not at all. Like, in Hebrew culture, there, there wasn't... An, there were, weren't things like hotels. That, that wasn't a structure. That wasn't, in fact, the law was, was very clear that when a stranger came into town, that it was the responsibility of the citizens, of the people of that town, to demonstrate to even the foreigner hospitality. There were no what we think of hotels in this culture because every home that had an extra room operated as a hotel. There wasn't like one place that you would go and you would congregate and like you would check into the inn. And then the innkeeper gets a bad rap. How do you turn away a pregnant woman? None of that really exists to this, which tells us two things. Now it's true that at this time, Bethlehem's not a big city. Um, everyone is, I mean, this is a global migration. People are leaving wherever they are. They're going back to their hometown. This is Rome imposing their will. This is not an option. You have to do this. And so the population of Bethlehem no doubt swells beyond its capacity. Everyone has, has a, their, their guest rooms filled. When, when we're told that there's no room for them in the inn, this word inn, it's, it's interesting. It can be translated guest room. That tells us something interesting. First, why is Joseph going to Bethlehem? He's going to Bethlehem because that's where his family is from. Meaning that in Bethlehem, Joseph would have what? Family. That's why he's going there. And not just Joseph, but you also now have Mary, who is also of the lineage of King David, who would Mary have in Bethlehem? Family. 
So when they get to Bethlehem and we're told that there's no room for them in the inn, the first conclusion that we can reach is that there was no family that wanted to let them in. Why? I'm sure the rumors had been spread. Family had talked. They show up and, and, and there is, their reputations are tarnished. They are the black sheep of the family. They had, when we read, there's no room for them in the end. They had no family that would open up their door, which gets compounded because she's pregnant, nine months pregnant. I mean, you would think that there would be a little bit of compassion, a little bit of de- human decency. And yet, why would you shun them? Why would you reject them? Because she's carrying a bastard and she's been lying about it and she's brought God into it and she's convinced Joseph of the same tale and people want nothing to do with it and they close their doors. I mean, think about the rejection of that. The embarrassment. You know, they go to their immediate family, they knock on the door. No, you're not welcome here. So Joseph turns to Mary, well, you, you know, you've got that, that second cousin removed. Maybe, they'll, maybe they got room for us. You knock on the door, no, 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 no. You're not welcome here. Like how far down the road did they go? How far across the family tree did they reach? But there was no room. And then beyond that, tight community. Why would no one else reach out. Why would no one, okay, you can't come to family, but she's pregnant. You know, we can make room on the Davenport for you. The other people traveling, for example, if, if let's say there was some kind of dynamic at play and your house was, was full and you have a very pregnant woman show up, like you would, you would make room, even if there was no room, like you're kicking the teenager out of his bed you're moving things around. This is a pregnant woman, but there's no compassion here. Nobody opens a door. Nobody welcomes them. And then we're told that, they, that, that Jesus, when he's born, he's laid in a manger. So desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, Joseph has to find some type of lodging. Now, does, does, we often get in our mind that the innkeeper, right, you know, holding his little lantern, you know, when they come up like, well, there's no vacancies, but I got this, I got this lean to the shed out back that you guys can come to. Like, we don't have that in the story. Like nobody opens up their manger for them. Nobody welcomes them to the stable. It seems as though Joseph just has to find something. They're squatting. Cause Mary is going to have a baby. They can't be out in the open. Now, when we think of the stable, we think of this like Thomas Kincaidish picture side, you know, this little beautiful, uh, you know, shed out on the flowing hills. And it's just, it's a beautiful, glorious thing. Problem with all of that is that there's just, that isn't how it worked. Like they didn't have sheds like that. First, wood's a very valuable commodity. Um, And that you weren't keeping your John Deere in your, in your shed. That's not what the shed was for. It was for cattle. It was for livestock. Again, that's why there's a manger. It's a feeding trough. In this culture, wood is at a premium. You didn't build a structure like, you didn't build homes with wood. You built homes with rock 
and then thatch roofs. I mean, again, wood's a premium. You used wood to make tools and very uh, unique things. In this culture, where was livestock often kept? Well, what was plentiful are caves all over the place. And, and a cave is a perfect place to store your animals. Why? Because there's only one way in and only one way out. And so at night, you could bring in your herds, your flocks into the cave. You could have uh, adequate provisions and food. They were protected from the elements. If it's raining, it's fine. If it's windy, lightning, thunder, you could also very easily protect your flock from um, pr- predators such as wolves. David was watching his flocks in these same hills and he killed a bear and he killed a lion. There were predators in the area. So if you you had a cave, it was a great place to take your herds, put them in the cave. They had ample provisions, good protection. And then if you're uh, the shepherd, this this is easy for you because you can just lay down, camp out at the front of the cave and you're good to go. You're not losing anything. This is the way that works. So when you're thinking of Mary and Joseph, no one welcomes them. They're totally rejected. No one shows hospitality, even though the law demanded it. They're poor. Joseph finds a cave. And they go in. Now, now we'll get to this in a couple weeks. Well, actually next week. Um, have you ever felt, found it odd that, you know, the, the shepherd story, they're out with their flocks at night. You, you weren't out with your flocks at night first. Where did you have your flocks? Well, at night you had them in your cave. So they're watching their flocks at night, which is dangerous. It's hard to keep track of the, the animals. Um, and then when the angel's like, hey, Unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And they're like, we know exactly where they are. Because they do, right? They immediately go. It seems as though that the shepherds are like, oh, yeah, not going to look too hard. We, why could it be that the only people that, that opened up a spot, that the shepherds come back that night with their flocks and there in the back is this couple and this woman is in labor, and this man is pale, trying to not pass out himself, and this teenager is gonna be doing this, and, and they took, take one look, and they're like, you know what? We'll just go back to the fields tonight, y'all. y'all. <laughs> it's yours. Make it nice, maybe. Again, we could talk about the implications of that next week. But they're in a stable, which, which means this is completely unsanitary. This would make an OBGYN pass out. Uh, there's no contraction machine, which by the way, I, I learned, uh, this is a tip for, for dads uh, whose wives have not have a, had a kid yet. Um, the contraction machine tells you when the contraction's happening, she already knows. With the firstborn, I made this mistake because I w- was trying not to require medical attention myself. And so I was very focused on the contraction monitor. And I'm holding Jessica's hand. I'm like, honey, it's coming. It's coming. This looks like a big one. And she's like, I know. (laughs) I'm feeling it. 
there's no contraction monitor. There's, there's no sanitation. They, they probably don't have pure water, like good water. There's hay. There's feces. It stinks. It smells. It's dim. If, if Joseph did candlelight or any type of fire, it's smoky. I mean, this is not an ideal situation. There is no handmaiden. There's no nurses. There's no doctor. They are on their own. And when I say they're on their own, it seems like Mary is on her own. But why do I say that? Well, look again at the text. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And imagine that conversation. Joey, my water broke. It's coming. It's happening. But then look, verse seven, and she brought forth her firstborn son. And then the, the next two ands link that, that, that pronoun. She brought forth her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger. As Joseph passed out, is Joseph down for the count? Is Joseph trying to find supplies? Is, is Joseph trying to keep the, the, the farm animals away? You have this teenager, Mary, and she delivers a baby by herself. I've seen this happen. I don't understand how this happens. That she, she birthed the child. She cut the umbilical cord. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger. I'm sure Joseph was there. Sure, he was helpful, but she, she did it. Wow. The moment. Because don't forget, they know who the child is. And you have to be thinking, don't you? That this tells us something about Jesus. It tells us something about God. If I'm sending my firstborn into the world, at least I'm going to send a hospital down with it. Or a doctor. Where are the angels? Couldn't they have helped? No. Imagine getting that assignment. Gabriel's like, nope. I'm the messenger. I'm, you know, blood. I'm just not good with that. But here they are. God sends his son into poverty. Total abject poverty. There's no silver spoon. He's born in Bethlehem. No family would let him in. He's in a stable with no health care, no doctors, a teenager who, by the way, has never delivered a baby either, like of her own. Maybe being there with Elizabeth gave her a little bit of knowledge and know-how, but she's still doing it on her own. What an amazing thing. What that tells us about this man and his mission and, and who Jesus would be. You know, of all the couples that God could have chosen, this is, this is, this is, providential. Like, keep that in mind. Th this wasn't a mistake. It wasn't as though that God's like, I thought Joseph would have, would have dipped into his 401k and would have, would have 
been a little better at this. No, God knew. This was designed and this was planned. And it's planned for this because of the ramifications of who shows up later in the night. We look at the story. We see the, the, the humility of it all. We see what Mary goes through. We see their rejection. There's no room in the inn. No one demonstrates hospitality. No one lends a helping hand. They are on their own. But let's take a moment, and again, we're looking at these things from chronology, their order and sequence. You know, we never really talk about Jesus' role in this. And you're like, well, he's a little baby. What's his role in this? He came out, screamed, got cleaned up, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and, and laid there like a, like a baby. Not, not so much, actually. In fact, we're going to go to three other passages of scripture to try to expand our understanding of how radical a moment this is. First, if you'd flip to Philippians chapter two. Philippians two, I'm going to read a few verses beginning with verse five. This expands our understanding of what's really happening in this scene. But Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, there's something about the mind of Christ that you should emulate. Let this mind be in you that we find in Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Then Paul continues the story. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, as a result of this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Again, we've, we've touched on this in our series, but Jesus coming out of the birth canal, being born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, is the most radical thing that has ever happened. Because what we're told here, very specifically, is that in the mind of Jesus, there was a decision made before all of that happened. Again, Jesus, second member of the Trinity, who is known in the Old Testament as Emmanuel, God with us, made a decision, made a choice. Here we go. In fact, let, let's, let's just touch on another passage, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 5. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, this is our Christmas story. When Jesus came into the world, he said, now that's interesting. Does Matthew record Jesus talking? Does Luke record a conversation where Jesus pops out? It's like, got to let you guys know if you think. No, this is happening right beforehand. He's coming into the world. And then we find this quotation from Psalms 40. This is what Jesus said. Sacrifice and offering 
you did not desire. And, and who's the, the you? He's talking to his father before he goes. Sacrifice and offering you, you don't desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. And the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously, Jesus was saying that sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you understand the scene that, that we have here. You go back to Luke, and she brought forth her firstborn son. While Mary's doing that, Jesus is making a decision. This is going to be my destiny. God decided to humble himself and entered the body that, according to Hebrews, had been prepared for him. There are mysteries in scripture. This is one of them. It is. Let's just be real about it. God makes the decision that in order to save his people from their sins, he would have to come and be a man and live a sinless life so that he could be an atoning sacrifice for their sin. Understand how that works. The wages of sin is death. Sin, your sin requires your death. But nobody can take your place. Why? Because they're also sinners and they owe their own debt. So the only remedy in the grand scheme of things is for God to become a man and be sinless. He's not tainted by the nature of Adam because guess what? There's no seed of man. The virgin conceives. Jesus comes without the blood of Adam. He's divine and he's holy. And he enters this body a baby, and then he lives a sinless life so that then he can willingly offer himself to die to pay for your sins because you never could do it, but he can. Their sacrifice, their offering, you don't delight in, is what Jesus says, but a body that I'll offer, that'll atone, that'll solve the problem. And so when you look at the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, understand a decision was made that night in heaven where Jesus is like, it's go time, baby. Literally, baby. And he enters this body and he humbles himself. And again, I don't exactly know how it all works per se, but there are attributes divine attributes of God that, that Jesus has and will always have, but he laid aside willingly. For example, his omnipresence, which is an essential defining characteristic of God. Omnipresent. Was Jesus omnipresent before? Sure. And this moment, was he? No, that little baby went everywhere. That little baby was attached to the hip of a teenager. The omnipresence of God humbled itself 
to be in one place at one time. And by the way, that never changed. Jesus laid aside an, the, the, the idea of, of omnipresence even now. Is Jesus everywhere at once? No. In fact, we're told very specifically where he is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He laid aside something. And Luke will go on to say that the boy grew in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But he made a decision here to humble himself. To lay aside power. Like there, there, there will be a very serious threat on, on the life of God. And Jesus has no control over it. He needs a good stepdad with wisdom that will listen to God and, and lead. I mean, the humility of this. There's one more passage that I want to touch on. Again, all of the, the gospels. They each write with their own intention. They present the life of Jesus with, with a unique perspective. Uh, Matthew is very intentional that he is presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. It's why the gospel of Matthew opens with a genealogy. Why? Well, because in order to be an heir to the throne, one has to establish a genealogical link to David, of which Matthew establishes. And then skirting the, the story, he goes right to the wise men that are affirming the, the king of the Jews. Like Matthew's story is presenting Jesus as the king, which tells us why he kind of presents this angle and why he focuses on Joseph. Because Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph and though could, could claim lineage through it. Mark, there is no mention of the, the Christmas story whatsoever. You don't have any, any tale. But Why? Makes sense. Mark, Mark is writing to a Gentile world filled with slaves. And he presents Jesus as the ultimate servant. The, 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 the bond servant, the servant of humanity. Jesus humbled himself. He serves us. But if you're a slave, who cares about your genealogy? Who cares about your birth? So it's not, it's not relevant to Mark's intention. Luke gives us the most detail of the birth of Jesus as we just looked at. Why? Well, because Luke is presenting Jesus as the son of man. He's presenting the humanity of Jesus. And as a result, the birth of Jesus, even he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And Matthew, Matthew doesn't, that's not important to Matthew, not important to Mark, but Luke has to establish that, which is why Luke gives us more of the birth of Jesus, because that makes sense. You're not a human unless you're born. John is interesting because one might initially say John John doesn't mention the birth of Jesus at all. I would say not so fast. But John is writing to the world, presenting Jesus as God. And in John chapter 1, we actually do get a very unique take on the Christmas story. John 1, I'm going to read several verses. John begins, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The word was with God and the word was God. So right from the beginning, John is addressing the world and two different schools of thought. Grecian thought, which said everything exists, everything exists by the thought. If, it, if, if, if there's a thought behind it, it exists. This goes to Plato and Socrates, Aristotle. The, the Greeks saw thinking as the essence of life and reality. The Jews, Jewish philosophers, philosophers would say, well, it's not, it's not the thought, it's the thinker. 
because a thought doesn't exist without a thinker. And the Greeks had a bit of a problem with that. But John jumps right into this philosophical conversation by saying, in the beginning was the word, logos, the thought, but that thought was God, okay? He was in the beginning with God. All things with this thought were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is part of his Christmas story. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He, speaking of John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Again, this is speaking of the light, which is the word. Interestingly, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. This is not just speaking of the Jews. The the way that this word own, his own, the tenses that are used, own can be broad. He came to creation. It's all his. But his own humanity did not receive him. But as many receive him, John says to him, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And this is the important part. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the Christmas story. That's John's presentation of the Christmas story. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt, it is a loaded term to a Hebrew audience. It's literally tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled. Was Jesus the body? No. Was Jesus the little baby? No. The body was a tabernacle, a a dwelling place for the presence of God in the same way that the tabernacle as the Jews were making their way through the wilderness and as they early settled into the land, they had a tabernacle, an actual physical dwelling that God dwelt in their midst. That tabernacle became a temple. It's the same word, tabernacled. Today, there's no need for a temple because what does Paul describe you and I as being? The temple of the living God. Why? Because God's presence in this world is dwelling where? Not in a physical place or physical location or even the body of Jesus. It's dwelling in you and in me. And that light shines forth. He dwelt, he tabernacled. That baby is God in the flesh. The incarnation. God taking flesh to dwell among us. There's a precedent here. You know, you think about the ramifications, the implications of what's happening. Um, I grew up in a church. My dad was, he's got like 30 Christmas series and they're all wonderful. And it's like, how can one man get so much out of one story, one story? It's maddening because I'm not very good at that. And he's a, he's a pro at it. 
And like, so you, you, you know, you, you come to a familiar text like this, whether you're a Christian or not, you, you know the story. And like, what's the angle that can make it fresh, that can expand your understanding of it? What's the angle? Something new. And then you struggle if it's new, it's typically not true. Somebody's being real novel, they're probably being an idiot. Here's the thought I had that I had never really considered about the incarnation, about what's happening. The birth of Jesus is important for it establishes a precedent that is very important to you and I. How are we born again? Jesus would say, we're not, we're not born, we're born of flesh, but to be born again, we're born of spirit. You see, regeneration is completely and utterly that rebirth in us that happens is entirely a work of God and God alone. Like this is what Jesus actually illustrates us, the birth of Jesus. Jesus's birth for us had no man in it. It is from start to finish completely a supernatural working of God. You can't understand it. It's hard to explain it. You, you get to a point you have to accept it. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I don't know how it all works, but it does. Because God did it and God's the only one that could do it. It's the only human birth that is entirely God. Adam wasn't born that way. God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. Jesus is the only birth that man played no role in. And he's the savior of our sin. And, and, and understand, the picture, religion, tries to say that you can save yourself, that man has a remedy, that man can do it, that you can do it, that you can save yourself. No, rebirth, regeneration, what happens in your life where what was dead is made to life, that can only happen through a work of God, and we know that work can happen because we see Jesus. Jesus was born, that's totally God, which sets for us a precedent by which we can be born again. Because God can birth things. And keep, keep it in mind, there was a moment that Jesus wasn't there and then there was a moment he was there. And you're like, how? Mary's, how? That's the work of God. It's the Holy Spirit. And you might be listening to the words that I'm saying and you're like, you know, I, I want this life. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Zach, I look at you and I reach one of two conclusions. Either you're really genuine and something's different about you or you're a looney tune. But I see something and I want that. I just don't know how it comes to be. I don't know how that can happen in me. You talk about like becoming a new person and having new thoughts and, and new desires and new, I, I want it. I just don't know how it happens. Like Mary, how? And, and, and the angel would say, as I do, God does it. Because God is in the business of taking something that doesn't exist and making it come into existence. The word, all things were created by him and all things exist that were created. How does the world exist? God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And you're like, I don't know how any of this can exist in me. Well, God can speak. He's the word. And what doesn't exist will come into existence if you ask for it. If you ask for it. You see, the story is not just that there was a babe born in Bethlehem. God was born in Bethlehem, which means that God can be born in your heart. If he can do it there, he can do it here. If you want it, if you ask for it, if you're willing to receive it. I'm not one of those people that that just say, you know, hey, blind faith, take a step of faith. Step out into the darkness. That's not actually faith. In Hebrews 11, we're told that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. There is substance and there's evidence behind a decision of faith. Will you have all your answers to all of your questions beforehand? No. Is there something mysterious about it? Sure. But is there enough reason to make a step of faith reasonable? That's a question only you can answer. So, Father, we thank you for your word.